Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. That's Philippians chapter 3, starting from verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, health and safety matters, and risk registers are important, and safeguarding is a key part of any healthy church's profile. Tomorrow evening, in fact, at our church council, we're going to be reviewing all our processes on these matters. Number of, and quite right that we should be, 
number of years ago, a friend of mine fell off a ladder. The air ambulance came to pick him up. What nobody knew, he's now dead, sadly, but uh, not from that incident, other than those who are actually there, was that the ladder was fully extended as a double ladder and that the ladder was balanced in the upraised bucket of a JCB. And so when he fell off, it was really quite serious. And uh, people, apparently, as the air ambulance came to pick him up, people were scattering in any number of different directions to be away from the scene. Probably you don't know this, but when they were knocking down the building that is at number one Leadenhall Street that was there before, um, as they were demolishing it, a group of scatterbolders was standing having a tea break, and they were on the ground floor. And from five floors above, a piece, a slab of concrete, several meters in diameter, came crashing through four of the floors and landed at their feet. I don't think anybody really knows about that either, but I happen to know one of the scaffolders, and he told me about it. So health and safety really matters, and health and safety saves lives, and risk registers are important, and safeguarding is an essential part of any healthy church. And for the next four weeks, risk, safety, and health are right at the heart of what we're going to be thinking about on these Sunday afternoons. You can see it from chapter 3 and verse 1, where Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Now, in short, the Apostle Paul wants us to be a safe church, spiritually safe. We've come to the second half of the central section of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and fruitful partnership has been key. And Paul wants his beloved Philippian co-workers to be really productive in their joyful service of the Lord Jesus. Remember the picture back in chapter 1 of coming in on the final day with a great trailer full of fruit as a result of a life well lived. It's a beautiful image of harvest time. And Paul's aim for us and for any church that reads this letter that we should be fruitful and productive The pivot of the letter we saw last week, the two examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, two key gospel partners, models, held out for us of fruitful laborers who partner and strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Then you get to chapter 3 and verse 1, and it looks like we've kind of headed off in a completely different direction, where Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Well, it's clear from this verse that safety is key. Paul's not so concerned for physical safety or even emotional psychological security. He's much more concerned for their spiritual safety, safe for you. But is this just a diversion? Well, a number of scholars have suggested it is a diversion, and what some people have suggested is that there were two letters, and what happened was um, the the ending of one got lost, and the beginning of another got lost, and they've come somehow been stitched together rather poorly. Well, Fred, I'm not persuaded by that, because if you were stitching a letter, you'd try and do a slightly better job. 
One scholar, a guy called Lightfoot, a great, great scholar, he actually suggests that Paul must have got distracted. And possibly for an hour or two, he put down his pen or quill or whatever it was, or maybe for a day or two, or possibly for even longer, he says, and then he comes back to writing his letter, and he's slightly sort of forgotten where he got to, and he starts off with slightly different tack. I'm not sure we need to go for any of those explanations. Just look, look, at, look across the page at chapter 1 and verse 27, where Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Verse 29, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and here I now have. So for the last few weeks, we've been looking at fruitful gospel partnerships, striving side by side for the face of the gospel. That comes to a climax with the pivotal figures of Timothy and Epaphroditus. But back in chapter 1, verse 28, 29, 30, 31, and so forth, and 30 rather, Paul introduces us to conflict and opponents. And so now in this second part of the central section of the letter, he turns to get the Philippians to consider the opponents who might lead them astray. And Paul's concern is that they stay safe even whilst there is opposition of the sort that they saw Paul had when he was with them, and here he now currently experiences, even while he's in prison in Rome. And so my aim this week and for the next few is that we stay safe, that we don't get diverted, that we remain faithful gospel partners. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the next six months, although that would be good. Um, My goal, and I'm sure Paul's, is that we remain faithful gospel partners for the rest of our lives. You know, looking at some of us, you know, assuming something awful doesn't happen or something wonderful, the Lord doesn't return. Some of us may have, you know, 40, 50, 60 years even of fruitful gospel partnership. Um, If I got 60 years left, then that would be miraculous. Two early lessons then this week in these seven verses on staying safe. First has got two parts to it. We must open our eyes to see the danger against us and the privilege that belongs to us. Secondly, we must do our sums. I've said do our sums because do the math, I felt wasn't quite appropriate for four o'clock in England, in London. So anyway, we must do our sums. We must do the mass. So we need to open our eyes to the dangers against us and the privileges that belong to us, the dangers. Now, verse 2 must rank as one of the most blunt and brutal statements in the whole of the New Testament. I think of three or four others that could qualify alongside it, two of them spoken by Jesus. But this is really very, very blunt. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And in order to understand what's going on here and why Paul is being so strong, we need to think a bit about the opposition that Paul was facing in Rome 
and that the Philippians were also experiencing and that actually plagued Paul throughout his whole Christian ministry. The language Paul uses of those who put confidence in the flesh. Three times he talks about confidence in the flesh. And confidence in the flesh is trust in the achievements of my own religious effort to get me right with God and to keep me in God's good books. That's confidence in the flesh. Confidence in my own religious effort to get me right with God and to put me in God's good books. And throughout Paul's ministry, throughout the growth of the early church, Christian preachers and Christian churches were plagued both by Jews who claimed to be Christian and by Jewish people who did not claim to be Christian, both groups insisting that in order to be genuinely one of God's people, Christian converts from outside the Jewish race needed to adopt Jewish custom, Jewish religious practice, and effectively become Jewish. Now, I don't think it's very hard to see why people might have said this in the early days of the Christian church. We claim as Christians that we are the true heirs of God's promises made by God from the creation of the world that are spelled out in the Old Testament. And we claim that we are the true children of God. If you're a Christian, I hope that's what you claim. That's what we claim. And that we enjoy all the blessings that God has for us for all of eternity. And you can just imagine the Jew or the very strongly Jewish Christian saying of the early Christians, well, they've got a nerve to be claiming that. You think you can be the true people of God without all the key religious customs that have been established over thousands of years? Now, if you're really going to be the true people of God, well, you need to adopt the ritual practices of Judaism with the washing and not eating certain kinds of meat and so forth. And you need to obey the Old Testament law, keeping the Sabbath and the religious feasts. And you need, above all, to get circumcised to show that you really belong. So the opposition, these people who put confidence in the flesh, they were ritualists, insisting on all the food laws and so forth. They were legalists. You must keep the Sabbath and keep all those festivals. And they were ceremonialists. You have to have been circumcised by way of initiation to the people of God. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? And Paul would disagree with you. By adding to simple faith in Jesus Christ, ritualistic, legalistic ceremonies, demanding that you can't be a true member of God's people if you don't add to your simple faith all the rule-keeping and eating the right kind of meat and not eating other kind of meat and so forth. Why, you are turning the grace of God freely given into a work. I call that, you know, rule-based religion or pay-as-you-go spirituality. You know, I've got to clock up enough brownie points or air miles to heaven. You know, you've got a loyalty point religion, confidence in the flesh. 
And of course, confidence in the flesh, it not only gave false assurance, but it limited the gospel advance. Because if you say only those who keep all of these religious practices are truly in, well, everybody then has effectively to become Jewish and get circumcised. You're adding to the gospel and you're limiting gospel advance. And people become obsessed with what's going on in religious services. And are you keeping this rule and that law and so forth? Now look at what Paul says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, on its own, that language is pretty strong, isn't it? But then when you add into it an understanding of the dog, the dog was not a kind of pampered crufts champion like Nala, who some of us may know, um, uh, uh, Phil and Emily's glorious Burmese, whatever, anyway, whatever, whatever she is. Uh, The dog was a semi-wild street dog that fed on carrion and filth and garbage, sticking its nose into refuse and detritus. And so you see what Paul is saying. These gospel plus pay-as-you-go guys, loyalty card religion guys, they seek to insist that you remain clean by keeping the ritual clean laws and only eating the right kind of food, actually they're no difference to a filthy street dog in God's eyes. By adding to the gospel of grace these religious rituals, they become to God like filthy street dogs. It's pretty straight talk, isn't it? Evil workers is another cutting insult. Jesus refers to Pharisees as being furiously works-orientated in their desire to make converts, traveling over land and sea to gain one convert. And Paul says that for all the zeal of the works of the law, actually all of that work, whether it's fasting or tithing or keeping special religious days and so forth, All of that work, which they think is such good work, is actually evil work. Because by adding to the gospel of grace that you must keep the Sabbath, you must keep the festival, you must attend and behave in this way, then you are effectively becoming a worker of evil. Again, it's very strong. And mutilators of the flesh, in talk terms of cutting insults, is the most cutting of the lot. Paul takes the word for circumcision, which speaks about cutting around, and he just changes it, and he talks about cutting down. It's a very clever insult. And of course, it was the pagan idolater who cut themselves to show God how serious they were about their religious zeal. And Paul says, ah, the circumcision part, he was saying you must get circumcised. If you're really going to benefit, they're no different to the pagan Baal worshippers of Mount Carmel who cut themselves to show God how zealous they were, rank pagans. And the language couldn't be blunter, could it? Or more offensive. Why does Paul speak so bluntly? Well, he wants to keep us safe. We'll find out more about why he speaks so bluntly next week, but by suggesting that I have to do stuff to get right with God and I have to perform to stay in God's good books, these works-based, brownie-point religious guys are leading their converts up a path of false confidence, confidence in the flesh, 
And when you think about it, they're tying their adherence into knots of religious practice, endless works, rather than being co-workers in the gospel and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. They're locked into their religious performance and confidence in the flesh. Now, I've been asking myself, you know, what kind of equivalent might we find uh, today? I've been a Christian since 1979 and uh, in Christian leadership since 1990. I've been asking myself, you know, is this a real threat to the four o'clock? Let me say, very rarely have I seen significant numbers of Christians who have deserted fruitful, mature service for rank unbelief. But we have seen many leave genuine, simple trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins for a form of religion that is, well, it's acceptable, but it's essentially works-based. I mean, for example, there, there is no doubt that there are real Christian believers in the Anglo-Catholic or Roman Catholic Church. And don't get me wrong. There are real Christian believers. But there is no doubt that at its very essence, Roman Catholicism gives pride of place to my works, what I do, the ceremonies I engage in, confession, penance, the mass, baptism, and so forth. For a period in the 1990s, a group emerged in London, the London Church of Christ, and they were very influential. They used to hang around at the back of St. Helens, actually, and try and talk to people, particularly at the 6 o'clock congregation. And they had this line that really, if you're going to be truly part of God's people, you had to be baptized into the London Church of Christ. An additional... This isn't a precise fit, but throughout my lifetime as a Christian, the church of Jesus Christ has been plagued by those who argue that a second experience of initiation is required in addition to simple trust in the Lord Jesus for a person truly to be saved and to be really useful in service. And that... Demand for a second blessing experience, baptism in the spirit, whatever, apart from simple receiving of Jesus, so it divides the Christians into first and second class, and it diverts Christians into pursuit of intense religious experience rather than simple trust in the Lord Jesus. And these things destroy our partnership because you end up with one group of people offering a gospel of good news of salvation through simple trust in Jesus and another demanding that we add to that trust a particular spiritual experience. And these things neutralize our fruitfulness but because we become obsessed with our religious works and our worship services and religious experiences rather engaged in striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul's spiritual safeguarding, training, it doesn't stop with the negative warning. And it's very strong, isn't it? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. To the command to open our eyes and watch out, 
Paul adds the positive encouragement of verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we need to open our eyes to the dangers against us and at the same time we need to open our eyes to the privileges that belong to us. And to lay claim to be the true circumcision is to lay claim to being the true people of God. Circumcision was the marker that set God's chosen people apart. Circumcision was the mark of being the covenant people of God. The cutting off of the foreskin symbolized the setting apart of a person to belong to God and to benefit from all the blessings of all his promises through all of the Old Testament. And Paul says, through simple trust in Jesus Christ, we now are the true circumcision. We are the real people of God. The whole Old Testament looked forward to a day when the outward symbol of cutting off the foreskin was replaced with an inward reality of setting apart of the whole person to belong to God. Think of Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. So says Paul, look, we don't put confidence in the flesh because we know that however much work we might do, we're never going to be good enough. We're never going to do enough. We're never going to have enough experience and so forth but rather we put our trust in Jesus Christ and then we are the true circumcised people of God. Our hearts have been circumcised by him, set apart to belong to him. And then he adds to we are the circumcision, three doing words, worshipping by the Spirit of Christ, glorying in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh. To worship by the Spirit is to worship 24-7, 360 degrees every single day of the year wherever we find ourselves. And the worship language Paul uses here speaks of the whole of life rather than just occasional services and meetings. It's deliberate. And to glory in Christ Jesus is to glory in the true Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the one who is nailed to the cross. So, We now have all the blessings that we read about in Ezekiel 36 of having our hearts cleansed and God himself dwelling within our hearts so that wherever we go, we can worship God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we now glory in the true Messiah. We're the true kingdom people of God because we follow Jesus Christ. Putting no confidence in the flesh because we've realized that however much religious ritual and rule-keeping and ceremonial performance we might engage in, our flesh can never achieve membership of God's people. And so by simple trust in God, and in simple trust in Jesus, Paul and the Philippians have received everything that the Judaizing opponents want to persuade the Philippians to adopt. They've got it all already. And so they can go out and proclaim Jesus wherever they find themselves, worshipping him rather than endlessly being in their buildings, engaging in their ceremonies and uh, full of angst of whether they're in or whether they're out and whether they've done enough. 
Now, I guess many of us won't have watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And if you haven't watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you really have missed out in life. And I want to suggest that you, <coughs> um, when your exams are over, um, get hold of it, ask mum and dad or whatever. But, do you know, the knights are in search of the Holy Grail and they come to a remote castle in northern France and they aim to persuade the occupants of the castle to join them in their quest for the Holy Grail. And as they approach, the heads of two French guards peer over the top of the battlements and they utter insults, as, you know, we like the French to do to, the, to their English knights. Your mother is a hamster and your father smells of elderberries and other such matters sort of thing, you know, all the proper caricatures. And the knights say, we've Come in search of the Holy Grail. And coming from the other side of the battlements here, we've already got one. And it's such a brilliant response, isn't it? Because if you've already got it all, you're never going to join the quest. You've got it already. And in a sense, that's... I mean, it's a bit of a ridiculous illustration, but in a sense, that's what Paul's saying there in verse 3, isn't it? Look out for the dogs... They're unclean, filthy dogs as far as God is concerned. Look out for the evildoers, all their works that they've massed up to try and make themselves right with God. They're just works of evil as far as God is concerned. Look out for those who are no different to pagan idolaters as they circumcise their children on the eighth day. Because we are the true circumcision. In Jesus Christ, we have it all. Be safe. trouble is it can seem most unsettling when someone comes to you and seeks to persuade you that in order to be a true member of the people of God and really effective, you need this additional extra. As a young Christian, I was part of a residential college Christian union, and there was actually a little group that set up to pray for me that I would receive some additional experience because they felt I hadn't really got it. I trust in the Lord Jesus. I've already got one. I wish I'd thought of that, actually, to tell them. But I mean, it's very sweet of them to pray for me. I'm very grateful they pray. But do you see how divisive that is? Watch out. As a young Christian worker here, working alongside two or three others uh, in Bible teaching ministry back in the early, uh, mid-1990s, a close friend of mine on the staff was taken out to lunch by a leading, leading figure in one of the major London churches who told him that he was missing out. And if only he would receive this additional experience, he would be truly useful to the Lord. He came back really quite unnerved. It can be very unsettling, can't it? But if you trust the Lord Jesus, you've got it all already. Confidence in the flesh is a different gospel. Well, let's move on, shall we, then, and take the other aspect that we just need to touch on briefly. He asks us to open our eyes and to look at the danger of the opponents and to open our eyes and look at the privileges that we already have. But then, by way of Example, Paul holds himself up in verses 4 through 7. And Paul is working towards verse 7, which is one for the accountants here. 
It's as if he has a spreadsheet. And he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I transferred into the loss column for the sake of Jesus Christ. And what Paul does is to run through the kind of confidence that he could have had in the flesh. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has confidence, reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he runs through it. Look at his pedigree. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, you had to get circumcised on the eighth day if you were a true Jewish child. If you were somebody who was brought in, a convert, you'd be circumcised later. But a true Jewish child was circumcised on the eighth day. He was, he was an eighth dayer. He was of the people of Israel. He may have been brought up in Galatia in Tarsus in southeastern Turkey, but no, he was actually a true blue Israelite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Of all the tribes in Israel, Benjamin was the favored tribe. Remember Rachel's second son, Benjamin, such a precious child to Jacob. And remember Benjamin, the one tribe that stayed faithful to the royal tribe of Judah? Remember Benjamin, the tribe from which the first king of Israel came? He was a Benjamite. And then he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, not many people spoke Hebrew, but he not only spoke Hebrew, he also could quote the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew cover to cover, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, his pedigree. As to the law of Pharisee, the most serious law keepers were the Pharisees. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he traveled far and wide to try and stamp out the church and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so, if, if you like, Paul holds up what you might have thought he had in the plus column. He came from the right family. He was sent to the right school. He attended the right college. He graduated from the right, with the right degree. He got a place in the right firm. He rose to the right position and he achieved the right recognition in spiritual terms. And then he said, all of that confidence in the flesh, I count as loss compared to the glory of knowing and belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. So safeguarding, how do we stay safe? Well, we look at the dangers and see how dangerous they are, and we're absolutely clear on that. We don't pussyfoot about. We realize that there are such things which purport to be Christian, but actually are deeply offensive to God and are very dangerous And then we look at the glory of Jesus. And then we do our profit and loss calculation. As we conclude, three very simple observations. One, the strength of Paul's language. I wonder if we are in danger because of the way our culture dislikes straight talking, sometimes of being squeamish, appeasers in the Christian church. Maybe we don't realize the stakes are as high as they are. 
So first, let's not be squeamish appeasers. Secondly, let's be fruitful calculators. What will keep us safe and fruitful as Christians is to keep our eyes fixed on the benefits that we have in Christ and to calculate the danger and the offensive nature of those who teach something additional to simple faith in Jesus. And then the last one is stolen from our Australian friends um, who talk about lifting sailing boats out of the water and scrubbing the bottom of the boat. You have to say that right, uh, to get the barnacles off. And in the Christian faith, all the way through our lives, we will find ourselves tempted to add confidence in the flesh, confidence in the flesh. Oh, well, if only I go to enough, I'll read small group studies or attend church enough or do the right ceremony or whatever. And we have to keep looking at where our trust is and scrub off any barnacles. Let me say a prayer. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the wonder of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ, that through faith, simple trust in him, he has won for us true membership of your people, that all your blessings belong to us. We thank you that your spirit dwells within us, that even as we go out tomorrow morning, we are worshippers of the living God, members of the kingdom of your Messiah. And we pray that you would guard us from putting confidence in the flesh, and we pray that you would enable us to see these things really very clearly, to be unafraid of straight talking. In Jesus' name, amen.